is Chichester Cinephile. The podcast for Chichester Cinema at New Park in Chichester, West Sussex. Find us at chichestercinema.org. Hello, here we are again with the Chichester Cinephile podcast, marking your card for the programme of films showing at the cinema in October. And as always, it's a diverse bunch. There are a number of education events planned, and we'll be going into that in more detail too. There's a listener's unforgettable film, and we will be marking Black History Month with some notable performances by black actors. That's all to come, but first let me introduce our guides to this month's programme. Carol. Hello, everyone. Patrick. Hi, I'm Patrick. I'm Deputy Education Officer at the cinema. And I'm Sandy, also from the education team. After this, we'll be making our suggestions for October. Bond. James Bond. First up is Carol. I'll be talking about Wildfire, the story of two sisters who were torn apart by family tragedy, but drawn together by a bond deeper than anything the local gossips can understand. And it's also a tale of blurred boundaries. Nora Jane Noon plays Lauren, who lives near the northern Irish border with her partner and works in a vast Amazon-style centre. And Nika McGuigan plays her troubled sister Kelly, returning home after a mysterious year-long absence. This tense reunion revives painful memories of their mother, who took her own life when they were both children. But yet, Kelly's homecoming also appears to relight the wildfire in the hearts of both women as they challenge the menfolk thereabouts who are still in hock to the macho culture of terrorist violence. The line between Lauren and her errant sister Kelly is increasingly told as they plunge back into their intense sibling relationship. And then there's the line that marks the Irish border, the backdrop to their family's story, and the source of its suffering. Savagely powerful, it is directed with an unshowy but acute eye and is a terrific feature debut from the writer and director Kathy Brady. And here's a clip featuring Nora Jane Noon and Nika McGuigan in a pub. <laughs> you don't know who you're dealing with, wee girl. Yeah, I do. 12th of July, 92. Busy day for you, wasn't it, Jerry? My man told me what you did. Our dad was one of the 26-year bomb killed. She doesn't even remember him. And you look at early release to keep the peace. He might be a free man, Jerry, but you're still a murderer. Oma! 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 You don't spare me, mess up! And sadly, Nika McGuigan died as the film was being completed. She did, yes. Mm. Very sad. Yeah, mm. she was the daughter of Barry McGuigan. Uh, the boxer. Really? The boxer, yeah. that's right. Yeah, she died, I think, in her early 30s. Yeah. yeah. Last month, Patrick told us about a classic film, and he's got another one this time, and I think it's one all of us would recommend. Well, when we complain about endless remakes and adaptations and long for originality in cinema, we should probably remember that The Maltese Falcon, re-released this month on its 80th anniversary, was not only an adaptation, but the third adaptation of Dashiell Hammett's novel since its publication in 1930. But John Huston, making his debut as a director after a decade as a screenwriter, wisely stuck much more closely to the book than the previous versions, and was blessed with a wonderful cast, including Sidney Greenstreet, also making his debut as a film actor at the age of 61, here explaining to Humphrey Bogart's private detective, Sam Spade, why everyone is after the eponymous falcon. What do you know, sir, about the order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, later known as the Knights of Rhodes and other things? Crusaders or something, weren't they? Very good. Sit down. In 1539, these crusading knights persuaded Emperor Charles V to give them the island of Malta. He made but one condition, that they pay him each year the tribute of a falcon an acknowledgement that Malta was still under Spain. You follow me? Uh-huh. Have you any conception of the extreme, the immeasurable wealth of the order of that time? I imagine they were pretty well fixed. Pretty well is putting it mildly. They were rolling in wealth, sir. For years they'd taken from the East, nobody knows what spoils of gems, precious metals, silks, ivory, sir. We all know the holy wars to them were largely a matter of loot. The knights were profoundly grateful to the Emperor Charles his generosity toward them. 
hit upon the happy thought of sending him for his first year's tribute. Not an insignificant live bird, but a glorious golden falcon, crusted from head to foot with the finest jewels in their covers. A masterly adaptation of a superb novel, which I remember first seeing 50 years ago in Richmond, Surrey. See the film, but read the book as well. There are quite a few films with the title Balloon. When I saw this in the programme for October, I thought at first it was the recent telling of a story of an East German family's escape over the Berlin Wall. In fact, that 2018 film is on the iPlayer at the moment. But no, the one we're talking about here is a 2019 Tibetan film directed and written by Pema Chaden. Set in the 1980s, it follows a family in a rural Tibetan community coming to terms with the hardships of Chinese occupation and its one-child policy, amongst other things. The balloon of the title could refer to condoms, but I suspect other metaphors as well. The clips I've seen look stunning and the reviews suggest that it starts out rather light-heartedly as the modern and traditional worlds collide, but becomes more serious as pregnancy and other issues complicate the family's life. Carol. The Kalini case happened to be the winner of the Audience Award for Best Film in this year's film festival, which you may have seen, but if you haven't, I suggest that you might come along to see this film. It's an enjoyable, slick procedural thriller which adapts Ferdinand von Schirach's international bestseller. In Berlin, just three months after passing the bar, lawyer Kaspar Leinen agrees to defend ageing Italian murderer Fabrizio Collini, played by Franco Nero. In an unfortunate coincidence, Collini's victim is German entrepreneur Hans Meyer, who is like a father to Kasper growing up. To make matters worse, his legal opponent is his former professor, Dr. Mattinger. Structured in three separate timelines, the Collini case deals with echoes of Nazism and packs a punch at the end. Leaning on the inherent intrigue of the narrative and the strength of his cast, director Kreutzpantner keeps things simple and engaging. No flashy aesthetics for him. An intelligent, unsettling and pertinent legal drama, there's a lot of dense plot and legal jargon to compress, but punchy editing ensures that the film remains fast-paced and light on its feet. And now Patrick... Well, I hope that I don't wear out my superlatives in this edition, but in the field of crime fiction, there are a few better films or books than The Maltese Falcon, and in that same genre on TV, I don't think that Sopranos has ever been bettered. Once again, we had writing of the highest quality and a cast of a similar calibre, led by the late and very much lamented James Gandolfini. Now we have a prequel, The Many Saints of Newark, with Gandolfini's son Michael playing his younger self, growing up in Newark in the late 1960s. Here's a clip. Hi, Christopher. Hello. Oh, what's the matter? Don't cry. It's only me, your Uncle Tony. Oh. What's wrong? Gucci go. Oh. oh. Okay. All right. All right. You know, every time you hear him, he cries like this. I didn't do anything. Oh, what happened? Okay. Look at that. I don't know what it is. It's like a scam or something. Some babies, when they come into the world, know all kinds of things from the other side. Michael has big boots to fill. One hopes that they aren't made of cement. But with the creator of the original series, David Chase, one of its regular writers, Lawrence Connor, as well as a director of several of the original episodes, Alan Taylor, all on board, I think he's in safe hands. By the way, you don't have to have seen the original series. But trust me, you should. Back in 1997, Kevin Allen directed Rhys Ifans and his brother Clear Ifans with Dougray Scott in the film Twin Town, which is fondly remembered by many filmgoers of a certain generation, and particularly in Wales, where it was set. Now these people have reunited for La Chacha. This time, Salty Buttering, played by Liam Hurican, is on a road trip to scatter his grandfather's ashes. Ashes scattering seems to be a repeating trope in films these days when he comes across a holiday park called La Chacha, full of unusual characters living off-grid. One of the most interesting things about this film is that it was entirely shot on iPhones. It's apparently a stopgap lockdown project before director Alan sets about a long-awaited sequel of sorts to Twin Town. It's also a family affair, as apart from the Ifans brothers, other stars include the director's brother Keith Allen, Keith's son Alfie Allen, and Keith's partner Tamsin Mallison, 
plus brother and sister pairing Ruby and Sonny Ashbourne Circus, children of actor Andy Circus. And on top of that, there are some cameos from famous Welsh rugby stars. Here's some of the trailer which should give you a flavour of the film. Get back 100 Viagras. I'm going to slip him in a sherry trifle. That was great, man. Do you know any Tin Lizzy? What do you say? A Yulish band. Fell in that. Over to you, Carol. I've gone for another German film, and it's called Next Door. And Daniel Brühl, who actually was a visitor to the cinema a few years ago when the film Rush came about, and a very nice man he is. Well, he is doing his directorial debut in this one and is also starring in it. And he features a version of himself, a self-involved movie star, who is living the dream in a gorgeous modern apartment in Berlin with his partner and two young children. One morning, he heads off to London to do a casting session for a superhero movie, which, undoubtedly absurd, will clearly be very lucrative. But he realises he set off too early, so he dismisses his driver and whiles away a few hours in a sparsely populated cafe in the former East Berlin, now significantly renovated and gentrified, and where a grumpy local, Bruno, Peter Kurt, happens to be slumped at the bar. Striking up a conversation, Bruno disquietingly reveals that he knows a lot about Brühl. Two fine actors volley for advantage across 90 minutes in this tastily intriguing little melodrama. Director Brühl shows a sure grip on this mostly two-handed barroom encounter between an international film star, which Brühl is himself, and a portly older man, Babylon Berlin's Peter Court in a terrific turn, who knows far too much about the actor's private life for comfort. The sharp-minded and engrossing drama of Wits and Secrets succeed in both keeping the audience keen to know what's really going on here and achieving liftoff for Brühl's directorial career if he seeks one. Extra fact, Daniel Brühl made his mark in the terrific Goodbye Lenin, in which Peter Court also starred. Patrick. sponsoring a new band it's called the velvet underground and um and we're trying to when since i don't really believe in painting anymore i thought it would be a nice way of combining uh and we have this chance to combine music and and art and uh uh films all together and, uh, and we're sort of working on that and and uh well the whole thing is being auditioned tomorrow at nine o'clock that was Venus in Furs, a little number about sadomasochism, by the band The Velvet Underground, from their debut album released in 1967. And the voice you heard afterwards was that of Andy Warhol, who acted as their original mentor. Todd Haynes, the director of Far From Heaven and Carol, is the man behind a new documentary about this avant-garde, highly influential band. And he has explored this territory previously in the fictional film Velvet Goldmine, in which Ewan McGregor played a character partly based on the lead singer and songwriter of the Velvet Underground, Lou Reed. The original band never visited the UK, but in the early 70s, soon after they broke up, I saw Reed and his fellow band members, John Cale and Nico, several times live. To this suburban teenager, they were the epitome of cool decadence, and it will be fascinating to revisit those times. In 1962, a film opened like this. Dr. No, James Bond, it's all become part of life. And at last, the latest instalment, No Time to Die, is out. And it's the final Bond from Daniel Craig. No Time to Die is directed by American director Kerry Joji Fukunaga, whose CV includes Beasts of No Nation, the Michael Fassbender Mia Vazikowska Jane Eyre, and the excellent True Detective TV series. 
I don't think we need to discuss the plot of a film like this, but Rafe Fiennes is back as M, Ben Wishaw as Q, Christoph Waltz as Blofeld, Leia Seydoux as Madeleine, and Naomi Harris as Moneypenny. There's also Rami Malek as a new bad guy, Safin. And here's a clip with Bond, Q, and a new 00 agent played by Lashana Lynch. Right, this is Qdar. We'll map the space as you move through it. Don't touch that. And Smart Blood will track you and your vitals. Bond, you don't mind a shot or two whilst at work, shall we? Well, I haven't had a drink for three or four hours. Wow. Doesn't sound like you. It's also the longest Bond film yet of the 25, or 27 if you include the original Casino Royale and Never Say Never Again, which were slightly outside the franchise. So, where do we stand on Bond films? I won't ask Patrick first, because I know the answer to this. <laughs> I think I've seen them all except two, Tomorrow Never Dies and Quantum of Solace. I think I've seen all the rest. Some are, to my mind, great entertainment, some not so. Carol, are you a Bond fan? I quite agree uh, with you. I think I've seen most of them as well. And what I like about the Bond films is, well, certainly the first few ones with Connery were just absolutely fabulous. And then Pierce Brosnan, I thought, was a, a very good Bond what I really like about the Bond films is some of the action. And what I don't like are the increasing CGI stuff, which just bores me to death. But the music, I find the music absolutely wonderful. The, the theme songs have just gone stratospherically. You the, know, la- you think the latest of, ones by Billie Eilish. Yes. But Shirley Bassey, of course, belted it out in Goldfinger and Sheena Easton for your eyes only. and uh, Matt Monroe. Matt Monroe, <laughs> yes, indeed. I think what will be fascinating about this would be to see how they managed to make a Bond which is kind of appropriate in... 2021 because if ever there was a, an extremely unwoke character <laughs> it's james bond isn't it and uh, and of course you can't get away now with the rampant sexism that uh, well they say did they in brought the 60s. in phoebe waller bridger from yeah Fleabag exactly yeah. to give it a little bit of a more i don't know if you can call it feminist but a little bit more mm. aware mm. spin but the reviews are good the reviews yeah. are excellent yes yeah. and robert wade who's one of the writers has been to the cinema to talk about his role as one of the the major writers of James Bond and who lives locally. But it's Mm. interesting how Bond has lasted so long and it has moved with the times to a certain extent even without getting totally as you say woke but there is an element of Bond which is still the same as the beginning Mm. and yet I think the films the last few anyway have really stood up in this century so it's interesting the way it has why do you think that is Andy why has it been why has it had such uh, staying power to last all that time that's a very difficult question to answer it has moved slightly with the times as Mm. I said and the stories aren't usually as important as the ridiculous characters and it is ridiculous they are pantomime spy films they're not hard-edged Len Dayton or John le Carre They are pantomimes, and as such, I've always known that, I think. And the thing that's always fascinated me is the one I would say I enjoyed the most of all those films has got the least good bond, because Honor Majesty's Secret Service had George Lazenby, who didn't really work. But as a film, I think it's probably the best one of the lot. But that's another enigma about Bond. What year was that again? It was... 1969. 69. I remember going to see it at the Ashford Astoria. People should really view this kind of film as pure and utter fantasy and great fun. And if they don't want to see this kind of film because they might be upset by certain aspects, then don't see it. Don't see it. There's always that option. But I think they do want to appeal to a younger generation as well. So as Sandy says, I think they have adapted. They have changed with the times. But then you've got Bourne and Mission Impossible, which are doing a lot of the same things. And Bond just seems to keep going. I don't know, we're not going to have a discussion here about who the next Bond might be, because who knows? 
No one but, knows. But <laughs> um, maybe this is time to call it quits. Maybe it's run its... I doubt it, though. I think it will go on. Yeah, I think that Barbara Broccoli, whose uh, family business it is, her father being the producer, will never want to let this go because... A, it must be so much fun to do, and uh, B, it's quite lucrative. Exactly. <laughs> and the Chinese market is the, is the strongest, yeah. which is why it wasn't released until now, which is my understanding of it. And if it gets everybody back into the cinema, then it's a good thing. Absolutely. Anyway. <laughs> here, here. Still to come are an unforgettable film from one of our listeners, a look at some of the education events this autumn, and as it's Black History Month, we will flag up some notable performances by black actors. Vouchers? We ain't got no vouchers. We don't need no vouchers. I don't have to show you any stinking vouchers. It's the unforgettable film from one of our listeners now. John Godsmark is with us. Which film means the most to you, John? Well, the, the film I've chosen is The Conversation. This is a 1974 film by Francis Ford Coppola. It was a bit of a project for him because he actually wrote it, produced it and directed it. So it meant a lot to him. And it stars Gene Hackman as a surveillance expert. And he's been given a job to record a couple that's walking around a square, an open square in San Francisco. And he doesn't really know what it's for. He just has to record it. And he has a team of people to record this conversation. And uh, they use quite advanced sort of techniques for the time. This is 1974. And so they do the tape recordings, but the recordings are not very good. You can imagine that technology. So there's lots of distortion. There's lots of silent passages. And so he has to go back to his so-called office and sort of change these tapes to make them so he can actually get all the words. Coppola does it very well. He sort of builds this from a sort of a, it's not a very important conversation. As Hackman interprets the tape and you understand the tape it gets more and more important and it actually the film becomes a sort of mystery thriller in the in the end do you remember when you first saw it yes we actually saw it at the cinema this is the 70s of course so we mostly saw it in 74 or 75 at the cinema so we're talking 50 years ago and that's one of the unforgettable things about it we didn't realize that time that you could actually record somebody in a public place we don't think of it, you know, nowadays, there's, there's cameras everywhere, so we don't think of it. But this is prior to computers, mobile phones. So it's quite shocking that you could actually do this in a public place. When he was going to come to see you, you just lived in a room alone, and you knew nothing about him. And if you loved him, you were patient with him. And even though he didn't dare ever tell you anything about himself personally, even though he may have loved you. Would you... Would you... Would you go back to him? John Godsmark was talking about The Conversation from 1974, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. And I still claim I'm as tight than I'd have proposed to you. If you'd have been a gentleman, you'd have forgotten all about it, but not you. I... We're all part of the education team at Chichester Cinema at New Park and there are quite a few events planned for the next couple of months. We're also joined now by another member of the team, Lynn Kelty. Hello. Hello. Thanks for being here, Lynn. Now, Patrick's investigation of Beethoven in movies will have come and gone by the time this podcast is published. And the next event is The Power of Film on October the 9th. We talked about that last month and it's nearly sold out, I believe. It's going to be looking at Victim from 1961 and Kathy Come Home from 1965, looking at how they change public opinion and the law. Then on October the 15th, we have an event linked to Black History Month. Patrick. That same month, Chichester Festival Theatre are presenting a production of The Long Song, which is a stage adaptation of Andrea Levy's book. 
And we thought it'd be nice to tie an event in with that. Now, Andre Levy was a British Jamaican writer. And so I thought it might be an idea to do an event based around TV adaptations of the works of British Jamaican writers. And so we're looking at Andrea Levy's The Long Song, also previous TV adaptation of her novel Small Island. We're looking at a couple by Zadie Smith, White Teeth and NW. And we're also going to have a look at an adaptation of Jean Reese's Wide Sargasso Sea. But Lynn, you're the one who's going to do the bit on The Long Song. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yes, Patrick. As you see, it's a novel by Andrea Levy. It was actually published in 2010 and it's set in 19th century Jamaica during the final days of the slave trade. Andrea said she didn't really want to write this book because she felt it would be very harrowing, simply because her great-great-grandfather, I think it was, was actually a slave in Jamaica. But she decided that she needed to write the novel. She wanted to celebrate the actual resilience of the slaves and to explore what hasn't been written in the history books, to actually look at one person's life, and in this case, it's someone called July, who was born and brought up on a slave plantation in Jamaica. Should we hear a little clip now? Caroline Mortimer comes out. She's the sister of the then owner of the plantation, which is called Amity. And she comes out to Jamaica with totally unrealistic expectations. She thinks the slaves are going to bow and curtsy and take her coat off and act in the way she feels slaves should. And of course, the reality was totally different. She was met by Godfrey, played by Lenny Henry, who manages to undermine her in very subtle and clever ways. He's a wily old fox and he plays the character really well. The scene is her talking to the assembled slaves with Lenny Henry out in front with this really smirk on his face. My brother says you cheat me. How can I be that expensive? It is not that the Kangos be expensive, missus. It is just that you cannot afford them. <laughs> How dare you talk back to me? Just get me a good price for them, boy, or I will have you whipped. That was Hayley Atwell and Lenny Henry in a scene from the television version of The Long Song. One of the points that Andrea Levy makes is that what she wanted to get out of the book was to let people know about the rich culture of music and history that came out of this particular period. She felt quite strongly about yeah. that. This event is on October the 15th in the studio at two o'clock and we've got different speakers because you're going to present one, aren't you, Sandy? Yeah, I'm going to be talking about White Teeth by Zadie Smith and the television version. White Teeth was written in 2000 and the TV version was back in 2002. So I'll be looking at that. Great book. Yeah, and I, I'm going to look at Wide Sargasso Sea, which I hadn't actually told Sandy about. This is just one no, I slipped in as, a, as an extra one, which was actually published in 1966. It's a much older novel. And uh, they did a BBC adaptation of it. And I'm also going to look at NW, which is a later novel by Zadie Smith. So, yeah, we're looking forward to that very much. Following that, Patrick, you're looking at the great Indian director, Satyajit Rai. That was the voice of Mudabi Mukherjee in the title role of Charalata, the 1964 film by Bengali director Satyajit Rai, which is being re-released to mark the 100th anniversary of his birth. As she sings, she moves backward and forward on a swing, as her secret love, her husband's cousin Amal, played by Sumitra Chatterjee, lays in the grass nearby. As I mentioned earlier, I'm in danger of wearing out my superlatives in this episode, but this is a truly beautiful and heartbreaking film about the breakdown of a marriage by one of the great masters of film composition. I'm also looking forward very much to presenting a session in the auditorium on the films of Satyajit Rai on Saturday, October the 30th at 10.30am, which I've called The Big River Flows, after Kurosawa's description of his style. And I'll be featuring clips from a wide range of his films, including Charalata, and also the Apu Trilogy, The Music Room, and many more. 
Charlotte will be screening in the auditorium on Saturday the 6th of November at 3 o'clock. And I think you can get a deal for the talk and the film at a reduced price. Oh, that sounds good. On November the 12th, I'll be taking a look at the way journalists are portrayed in films, looking at fictional ones and real-life reporters. There'll be plenty of clips in what will, by necessity, be a very personal choice of films. I didn't realise just how many there were until I scratched the surface. I was a journalist for the best part of 45 years, so it's a subject near to my heart. If this is of interest to you, I hope to see you there for that one. On the 20th of November at 12.30, we are presenting a long postponed session, which it was originally planned for last year to mark the 90th birthday of Stephen Sondheim. And this looks like being a very interesting event because the first half of the session will be presented by Simon Barker, who's visiting Professor of English Literature at the University of Gloucestershire. And he's going to be talking about Sondheim's work on stage. And then in the second half of the event, Rosemary Coxon and myself will be looking at screen adaptations of Sondheim's work, including several of the films actually based on his stage musicals and also other films in which his music featured. And after this, we'll be paying our respects to some great actors of colour. What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400,000. As October is Black History Month, we'll be looking at a number of influential black actors and how they fit into the history of cinema. At the 1940 Academy Awards, this happened. White actress Faye Bainter took to the podium. To me it seems more than just a plaque of gold. It opens the doors of this room, moves back the walls, and it enables us to embrace the whole of America. An America that we love. An America that almost alone in the world today, recognizes and pays tribute to those who give their best, regardless of creed, race or color. She presented the Best Supporting Actress Award to Hattie McDaniel, the first African-American not only to win an Oscar, but to be nominated. This is one of the happiest moments of my life, and I want to thank each one of you who had a part in selecting me for one of the awards. For your kindness, it has made me feel very, very humble. And I shall always hold it as a beacon for anything that I may be able to do in the future. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. And may I say thank you and God bless you. The role she won for was not without controversy. Born in either 1893 or 1895, of parents who were born into slavery, and having been a singer and actor, she followed her brother Sam to Hollywood. She played a maid 47 times, but was apparently pragmatic about this. I can be a maid for $7 a week, or I can play a maid for $700 a week. She was then in showboat with Paul Robeson. In 1937, Bing Crosby, a friend of her brother's, suggested to producer David O. Selznick that he consider the actress who played Queenie in Showboat for Gone with the Wind. She landed the Oscar-winning role as Mammy, the house servant, heard here with Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara. Good up the attic, Mammy, and get our Mars box dress pattern. What you up to with Miss Ellen's portiers? You're going to make me a new dress. Not with Miss Ellen's portiers. Not while i got breath in my body. Great ball of fire. And my portiers now. I'm going to Atlanta for that $300, and I've got to go looking like a queen. Who's going to Atlanta with you? I'm going alone. That's what you think. I was going to Atlanta with you, with you in that new dress. Now, Mammy, darling. No use to try to sweet talk me, Miss Scarlett. I know you ever since I put the first pair of diapers on you. I said I was going to Atlanta with you, and Guan I is. Gone with the Wind's attitude to slavery and black people has always been problematic. McDaniel felt that as Mammy she rose above the stereotypes, but the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, the NAACP, was unhappy about the demeaning nature of so many black roles. 
Also, the premiere of Gone with the Wind was in Atlanta, where the city insisted that no black cast members could attend. Clark Gable, a close friend of McDaniel from a previous film, refused to attend until McDaniel persuaded him to. It's hard to separate the rights and wrongs of the Gone with the Wind situation, and it's probably not for me to judge, but film director Spike Lee, not known for sweeping anything under the carpet, said actors like McDaniel were working with the best that was being offered to them at the time. Hattie McDaniel died from complications from diabetes and breast cancer in 1952 at just 59 years old. And her legacy is either someone who quietly broke down some of the barriers facing black actors or a good actor who was only able to play certain roles allocated to her. She could sing though. This is Just One Sorrowing Heart from 1927. I've got one Just one sorrow I've got one, just one flowering heart. Eartha Kitt stars in St. Louis Blues, the 1958 film about the composer Will Handy. And she is Gogo Germain, the local singer with a big-time talent and ambition who recognises Will's ability and plans to make her own name and fame by singing his songs. This film also stars the creme de la creme of the era, Nat King Cole. my nest Way up in the air Where the bad girl could not bother me Pearl Bailey Cab Calloway for heaven's sakes Mahalia Jackson Ella Fitzgerald and others Eartha Kitt was an American entertainer with a distinctive feline drawl Want to try one? Her hits included Santa Baby and Ceci Bon. She was a one-off. For six decades, she made her mark in cabaret, on Broadway, in films, including Batman as Catwoman and as a dancer. Orson Welles once called her the most exciting woman in the world. The 1950s was her golden age of record hits. I Want to Be Evil and Santa Baby, amongst others, which established the image of a teasing, self-mocking sex kitten. She recorded Just an Old Fashioned Girl, the song that became her signature tune in Britain in 1955. She looked almost like losing her American public after she upset Lady Bird Johnson, wife of the President Johnson, by speaking her mind about the Vietnam War at a 1968 luncheon at the White House. Apparently, Lady Bird burst into tears. The CIA described her as a sadistic nymphomaniac. She continued to perform until just before she died when she was 80 and is still remembered for her rather remarkable ability to sing quite extraordinary songs and they stick in your mind once you hear them. Here's a clip with Eartha Kitt and Ruby D. Do I know you? You only met me once with Will Handy. My name is Elizabeth. Oh, a girl in the hallway. What can I do for you, honey? Will had to move out of his home. So? Can't you see that this kind of life is wrong for a man like Will? No, I can't. I thought that maybe if you love him, I mean really love him, you want to do what's best for him. What's best for him or best for you? I think you're a very bad influence on him. I think you have things a little backwards, honey. You may be a good judge of women, but you have a lot to learn about Will Handy. When it comes to iconic film lines spoken by anyone, there are few as memorable as... They call me Mr. Tibbs. 
The actor is Sidney Poitier in the film In the Heat of the Night. In the heat of the night Seems like a cold sweat creeping across my brow Yeah In the heat Born in 1927, Poitier's first uncredited film role was in 1947. His breakout film was Blackboard Jungle in 1955, and by 1958 he was Oscar-nominated for The Defiant Ones, where he plays an escaped prisoner handcuffed to the white Tony Curtis. Inevitably, I suppose, his colour defined his dramatic roles. However, it was a comedy, Lilies of the Field, in 1963, that led to his Best Actor Oscar success. In 1967, the role of Virgil Tibbs in Norman Jewison's In the Heat of the Night came along. Poitier's Mr. Tibbs is a Philadelphia cop who finds himself involved in the investigation of a murder in Mississippi alongside a racist police chief, Rod Steiger, who won a Best Actor Oscar for his performance. The contrast between life for an African-American in the northern and southern states in 1967, or 1966 when it was shot, is stark. Having had an unsettling experience in Georgia with Harry Belafonte when the two were chased and threatened, Poitier refused to shoot the film south of the Mason-Dixon line. The director agreed and it was shot in southern Illinois just across the state line from Missouri. However, he needed to film at a cotton plantation and couldn't find one in the north. He pleaded with Poitier to do two days shooting in the south at a location in Dyersburg, Tennessee. They had to stay in the Holiday Inn as the town's main hotel was whites only and Jewison recalled that in 1966, just after Martin Luther King had been on the march in Selma, it was a volatile time in the South. And there's no escaping the fact that the film was controversial. The lead actors, though, are on formidable form. Here's a clip. Bird's here, Chief. He thinks that Harvey's innocent. Well, I'll be damned. Could I talk to you about it in private? No, you can't talk to me about it in private, see, because I got Cobert's wallet right here in my hand. We took it from Harvey Overs. You don't think he gave it to him, do you? I don't know, but Overs could have come along after the crime, found it, picked it up. I don't know. That's what the boy said he did. I'm sorry, man, but I said different. Well, when I examined the deceased, it was obvious that the fatal blow was struck from an angle of 17 degrees from the right, which makes it almost certain the person who did it is right-handed. So what? Old Harv's left-handed, Chief. Everybody in town knows that. Yeah, uh, that's what we figured out, Chief. Uh, Harvey's a lefty, uh uh-huh. That was Revolution by Arrested Development, which plays over the end credits of Spike Lee's epic three-hour-plus film Malcolm X, released in 1992, which covers the life of the black activist up until his assassination in 1965 by members of the organisation to which he had devoted a large part of his life, Nation of Islam. If you're looking for a film about black history in Black History Month, this has arguably never been bettered. And although it features a generally superb cast in the supporting roles and highly accomplished work from Lee as director. By the way, Norman Jewison, director of In the Heat of the Night, was originally hired to direct it, but stepped aside when there was an outcry over a white director making the film. So despite all that, there's little doubt that the film's power and intelligence owes in large part to the extraordinary central performance from Denzel Washington. His character moves from petty criminal to prison where he is radicalised, joining the Nation of Islam on release, his visit to Mecca and his ultimate rejection of Elijah Muhammad which leads to his death. Malcolm X was a highly complex character but Washington makes the vicissitudes in his convictions entirely believable. In this clip, he recreates the famous reaction of Malcolm X to the death of President Kennedy, which caused so much outrage at the time. Mr. X, don't you even feel a little bit of remorse, saddened by the President Kennedy's assassination? Well, sir, I don't think anybody here would deny that when you send uh, your chickens out in the morning from your barnyard, those chickens will return that evening to your barnyard, not your neighbor's barnyard. I think this is a prime example of the devil's chickens coming back home to roost that the chickens that he sent out, the violence that he's perpetrated in other countries here and abroad, be it four children in Birmingham or Medgar Evans or Lumumba over in Africa, I think this same violence has come back to claim one of their own. Now, being an old farm boy myself, chickens coming home to roost never made me sad. 
In fact, it's only made me glad. I'd like to follow up on that question. This performance is remarkably close to the archive footage of Malcolm X, but he's always more than an impersonation, effectively conveying both his power as a public speaker and the private doubts which racked him at key moments in his life. A strange man, Malcolm X was extremely adept at inspiring others, whilst also highly susceptible himself to manipulation by those who sought to weaponize his charisma and good looks. Washington clearly gets this and creates a character neither saintly nor evil in a performance which has not dated an iota in the almost 30 years that has elapsed since its release. He has, of course, appeared in a lot of mediocre action films which have not been worthy of him. But at his best, he is arguably the finest black film actor of them all. You don't know what you do until you put under pressure. Cross 110th Street is a hell of a test Across 110th Street, pimps trying to catch a woman that's weak. Across 110th Street, pushers won't let the junkie go free. That was Across 110th Street, originally recorded by Bobby Womack for the 1972 crime movie of the same name, which was repurposed by Quentin Tarantino for his third film as director, Jackie Brown, an adaptation of Elmore Leonard's Rum Punch, which Tarantino conceived as a star vehicle for the queen of 1970s black exploitation movies, Pam Greer. Greer's Jackie is a black woman of a certain age, down on her luck, driven by her craving for financial security to act as a pawn for ruthless gun dealer Ordell Robbie, played by Samuel L. Jackson. The complex plot, told through a non-linear narrative, has at its heart the relationship that develops between Jackie and Max Cherry, played by Robert Forster, a bail bondsman who becomes drawn into a scheme to smuggle a large amount of Robbie's cash into the country. In this clip, she reveals her despair at her situation to Cherry over breakfast at her apartment. Mm. I always feel like I'm starting over. How many pounds you said you wrote? 15,000. Is that a lot? It's plenty. Well, I've flown over 7 million miles and I've been waiting on people for 20 years. And after my bus, the best job I could get was with Cabo Air, which is the worst job you could get in this industry. You know, I make 16,000 a year, plus retirement benefits that ain't worth a damn. And with this arrest hanging over my head, Max, I'm scared. And if I lose this job, I gotta start all over again, and I ain't got nothing to start over with. I'll be stuck with whatever I can get. And that shit is more scary than Ordell. I talked earlier about how great performances can lift what is essentially a genre picture, a crime movie, in that case the Maltese Falcon, to the level of a masterpiece. Tarantino, in what is perhaps his most conventional picture stylistically, for all its non-linear devices, and his only feature adapted from another source, has the good sense and good taste to allow Greer to dominate the picture with a beautifully understated performance, on the surface fearless and determined, underneath terrified of what the future holds should she fail. It's a great pity that in the years since this film, she was never again offered a role commensurate with her gifts. The narrator of Zadie Smith's novel, White Teeth, that we discussed earlier, brackets Greer with Brando, Madonna and Cleopatra as someone who simply exudes sex. This is very true, but she brought much more than that to this role, an emotional intelligence that anyone could relate to, black, white, male or female. It brought her little tangible reward. Forster was Oscar-nominated. She was ignored. An act of criminal neglect as heinous as any in the Academy's history. English actor, writer, director, Chiwetel Ejiofor is renowned for his portrayal of Solomon Northrup in 12 Years a Slave, which came out in 2013, and for which he received an Academy Award and also Golden Globe Award nominations, along with the BAFTA Award for Best Actor. 
It was a role that required precise, wordless expression, Ejiofor proving himself a master of physical understatement with his clench of the teeth and slightest parting of his lips, which spoke volumes. His stance, too, from upright to bowed and beyond, is crucial. Based on the 19th century memoir of Solomon Northup, directed by Steve McQueen, it follows the tribulations of Solomon, an educated carpenter, musician, and family man from New York State, who in 1841 was kidnapped and sold into slavery in the South, a shockingly common phenomenon. Stripped of his past, his identity, and even in the eyes of the law, his humanity, he was renamed Platt and becomes the property of plantation owner Ford, who's played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Ejiofor is also known for playing Okwe in Dirty Pretty Things in 2002, Lola in Kinky Boots in 2005, and many more characters on screen and on stage. On 12 Years a Slave, he said, there are 21 million people in slavery right now. I just hope that 150 years from now, our ambivalence will not allow another filmmaker to make this film. And here's a clip from 12 Years a Slave with Chuitalegia 4 and his mistress played by Sarah Paulson. This is a list of goods and sundries. You will take it to be filled and return immediately. Take your tag. Tell Bartholomew to add it to our debt. Yes, miss. Where are you from, Platt? I told you. Tell me again. Washington. Who were your master? Master name of Freeman. Was he a learned man? I suppose so. He learned you to read? A word, here or there. But I've no understanding of the written text. Don't trouble yourself with it. Same as the rest, master bought you here to work, that's all. Any more, I'll earn you a hundred lashes. That's it for this month. We'll be back in a few weeks with the programme for November. Please don't forget to let us know if you'd like to tell us about your unforgettable film, the film that means the most to you. Contact us via walter at chichestercinema.org and please mark it podcast. Thanks to Lynn from the education team for joining us and to you for listening. Until next month, it's goodbye from Carol. Goodbye, everyone. From Patrick. Goodbye. And from me, Sandy. Goodbye. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Find us at chichestercinema.org.